Are you ready to overcome the complexities and burdens that come with your success? Join the team at Centura Wealth Advisory in the Live Life Liberated podcast. Now, on to the show. Hello and welcome to Live Life Liberated with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. Today we have Kyle Molmstrom and he has a special guest and that is David Gephardt from Centara Legal Group. Gentlemen, how are you today? Doing awesome. Thanks, Eric. Doing well. How are you? Doing fantastic. Kyle, you brought David on the show today. How did you guys start working together? Dave and I have been working together for over 15 years, plus or minus a year there. Uh, when I got into the business, 2004, he was the estate planning attorney, or his group worked with Centara Capital, which was the original group that I joined. Uh, and we've been working with clients together for that amount of time. Outstanding. How is it to work with him? <laughs> no, just putting Dave's you on the spot there. Dave's okay. great to work with. <laughs> well, that's always good to hear. David, I'll ask you the same question. How is uh, Kyle to work with? Pretty good? It's yeah. great. You know, there's few people that I've worked with longer than Kyle. So he's a, he's a great partner. He knows how to, how to set up cases, how to gather information, and uh, it's fantastic. Right on. Well, what are we talking about today? Today, we brought Dave Gephardt online because... Uh, there's kind of a hot planning topic that we want to discuss, and it's known as the upstream power of appointment. Another name for it might be the general power of appointment. Uh, it goes by a couple different names. And so we wanted to run through the mechanics of it and talked about the benefits of it and what the drawbacks are, basically educate people on how the strategy might apply the, to their life and how they can benefit from it. All right. I, I've never heard of this, so I'm, I'm here to learn from you guys. Uh, where do you start today with this? Well, I think what we need to do is set up what it is, talk about the benefits so that okay. people can grasp, okay, how does this apply to me? And then we can get deeper into the details of why and how and, and what and when and, and what are the risks and what are the problems that might uh, come about from doing a strategy like this. It seems like if the setup is right, it's kind of a no-brainer for me and my clients, but it has to be the right fact pattern. So we want to identify that fact pattern and, and get that out there. All right. The general idea behind the upstream power of appointment is it's really about tax planning. And as you know, Eric, we do quite a bit of tax planning here, and Dave mm -hmm. does a lot of tax planning with us. You have different taxes. You have capital gains taxes. You have estate taxes. You have gift taxes. You have income taxes. You have all these different taxes. This one specifically is going to apply primarily to the capital gains tax, there's some different taxes, you know, generation skipping tax and things like that that could apply. But for the essence of this conversation, we're going to talk about the capital gains tax. Okay. And this strategy is about how to get a step up in basis when someone else passes away. So, Dave, do you want to give us a quick rundown on what a step up in basis is and what that means so that uh, our audience understands what we're talking about here? Well, sure. So in tax, when you purchase an asset, uh, whether it's real estate or stock or anything like that, it's going to have a cost basis, meaning the amount that you paid for it or the amount that's been contributed over time, less depreciation. And then if you were to go to sell it, then the tax that is due is the difference between those two numbers, the difference between what you paid for it and what you sold it for. That's the, the tax on capital gain. Mm -hmm. A step up uh, this was a rule that was instituted, gosh, almost a century ago, where if you hold an asset when you pass away, that asset gets a step up, meaning the cost basis goes to the current market value rather than the existing cost basis. 
so that your beneficiaries, your heirs, do not pay a capital gain when they sell it uh, or it gets a new depreciation schedule if you keep it, that type of thing. Okay. The capital gains tax rates, you know, are 15% for the vast majority of the public, but for our high net worth clients, anybody making over 250 grand as a married couple is going to pay 20%, but then they also, I'm sorry, they're going to pay 20%, and then they're also going to have the net income investment tax, which a lot of people know is the Obamacare tax, which is another 3.8%. That's over the 250. And then you're going to pay the state of California tax, which if you're making over a million dollars here is another 13.3%. So all in all, you could get Close to 40%, just a little over 38% mm. here in the state of California if you sell something. Ouch. Yeah. So an easy an example of cost basis just to get everyone's uh, head wrapped around it. Let's say your dad buys a stock in 1990 for ten grand and it, and it appreciates today to $110,000. If he sells that stock today, he's going to pay tax on the $100,000 of gain. Mm-hmm. But when he passes away... What Dave was talking about was he gets a, the, the heirs get a step up in basis at the date of his death. So that $110,000, which is the, today's market value at the time that he passes, is the new basis for the stock. So the heirs have the opportunity to sell that stock at one hundred and ten grand and not pay any tax, which is, which is huge, right? Yeah. But for, but for most of our clients, waiting until they die doesn't benefit them. So that's kind of the idea of the strategy is you don't have – you don't have to die uh, to get the step up in basis. All right. So how does it work? Let's let's talk about the benefits of the strategy. I think I think that's a good place to start. So Dave, um, when we're talking about you know you and I work together quite a bit. So when we're looking at uh, our clients' plans and putting it together, what are some of the benefits that we're going to get out of this strategy? Well, I think a lot of the benefits are uh, obviously tax savings, but also flexibility. So oftentimes, uh, you know, the client fact patterns that we usually see, clients in their 60s or in their 70s, they have an existing portfolio of assets that they've accumulated over their lives. And these assets are real estate or a stock portfolio, or it could be anything really. And those assets their cost basis is what it is. It's, uh, you know, if they've got uh, rental properties, then that cost basis could be very low because they've held it for 20 years. Or if it's a stock portfolio and they've got uh, certain stocks, you know, they they bought Amazon when it was low or they bought, uh, you know, these other stocks that were low and they've just held it for a really long time, then their cost basis is low. And that tends to reinforce itself over time because it's hard to reposition when you have these low basis assets uh, because it's painful. You have to pay that tax. So it tends to uh, even compound over time. So you get more and more concentrated positions in these very low asset, low basis assets. Um, and so that's that's what occurs over time. Um, and so the benefit of doing a strategy, something like the upstream power of appointment trust, is it, uh, it can raise those cost basis so you can reposition uh, or use those assets, or do whatever you please with them. Uh, it, it, it frees up a lot of uh, a lot of opportunity. I'd add to that in that. Uh, well, I first and foremost, second, the flexibility and optionality of the strategy. Anytime we're doing planning for our clients, anytime we can create flexibility, uh, we're gonna we're gonna be an advocate for that, and we're gonna pro- be a proponent and say, hey, look, this is gonna create a lot of optionality for you. So one of the other things, Dave, that you touched upon 
was let's say you have rental properties that have been depreciated for a really long time and you got the step up at that point in time now you've reset the depreciation schedules which could be depending on the amount of real estate uh, you, ha you have could be 10 20 50 hundred thousand dollars in annual tax savings because you have a new depreciation schedule offsetting that income so there's real real tax savings in this strategy here yeah it sounds like it I mean that's huge Hey, Dave, let's, let's go ahead and tell everybody what we're talking about and how this strategy works, and then we can get into more of the mechanics of it. When we're talking about the upstream power of appointment strategy, what is it that we're, we're talking about? Uh, well, I guess let me take even a step back. The, the purpose of a, uh, of a step up uh, in the context of tax law, you know, it's not often that the IRS will give you a benefit for nothing, basically, but the purpose of this was kind of a recognition of, of really two things. When somebody passes away, those assets could be subject to both estate taxes and if they're subject to capital gains taxes, then that might be really punitive. It could be, uh, you know, the, the, the marginal rate gets up in the high 80s, 90% on a particular asset inheriting it. That's, that's very difficult for beneficiaries. The other thing is, is if you inherit an asset, you don't have any of the records on that asset, uh, so you you know it's really hard to calculate that cost basis. So that's really the main reasons that the IRS gives us this step up uh, when somebody passes away. So what we're trying to do is to capture this step up in a way that doesn't involve the client themselves passing away. Maybe we can use it if a, if a trusted relative passes away, perhaps. So the first thing that's done is we set up a trust, uh, and this trust has certain characteristics and it grants to a parent perhaps uh, an older relative who, who may have a shorter life expectancy than the client it grants them special powers it's called a power of appointment and if that relative passes away with that power of appointment still in place then those assets that are subject to that power of appointment get a step up so now the client can do what they please with it so I want to make sure Everyone understands that. So what you're saying is, in this strategy, we're going to use someone else's life, probably somebody that has a shorter than normal or a shorter life expectancy, probably less than 10 years for sure. Less than five years is probably ideal. And then when they pass away, you're going to get a step up because they had the power of appointment, which makes that included in their estate. Is that right, Dave? That's right. That's right. So thus... When they get the step up upon someone else's passing, then they have the optionality to sell. They can reset the depreciation schedules, kind of some of those benefits we talked about. Now, the power of appointment, what, explain that just a little bit because the, you're, you're choosing somebody that has a lower lifespan, right, is what you're saying. How does that work with the power of appointment as far as ownership? So I can, I can feel that. So technically, the IRS when they measure things from an estate tax point of view, uh, they want to say, you know, John Doe who passed away, we want to measure everything that he owns so that we can accurately assess estate taxes. Mm -hmm. Now they define what you own as what you own or in some cases what you control. And so in this case, what we're trying to do is give just enough control to gotcha. the older generation, to the other individual, so that it's included in their estate from an estate tax point of view, and in that sense, uh, gets a step up. So this is a way of 
kind of triggering measurement from an estate tax point of view so that we get that, I guess, side effect benefit of getting a step up in cost basis. All right. That makes sense. I think a case example might be helpful here. So we recently met up with a gentleman. He's worth about $40 million. He's in his 50s. And he's pretty affluent guy, very sophisticated guy, high net worth, uh, high income. And he had made several private investments into Reg D Section 144 investments, private placement investments. And one of the investments that he had put money in, uh, he had a home run on, and it, he originally put $2 million in it and, it, and it grew to about $10 million. Now he has this $10 million asset that he really can't do anything with unless he wants to pay a truckload of taxes and being mm-hmm. a high-income earner, he's going to be paying for close to 40% on that $8 million mm-hmm. worth of gain. Unfortunately, he didn't meet us soon enough because his mom got ill and she had a shortened life expectancy and she passed away last year. And had he done this type of strategy, that $2 million basis would have stepped up to $10 million and he would have saved the tax on the $8 million, call it $3 million in tax. Mm-hmm. So wow. all he has to do is give his in, I mean, it's pretty technical, and that's why we have Dave on the line. But by giving his mom this power of appointment, the ability to uh, direct where the assets go, he would have got the step up. So let's let's chat about that, Dave. So what is what does giving someone power of appointment mean? So power of appointment. Uh, again, legal words are uh, not our ordinary language. So power of appointment just means power to direct where assets go. Uh, so if you want to think about it that way, it could be that the trust document gives, uh, I mean, trust documents give powers of appointment all the time for different reasons. But specifically for this, we're talking about giving, uh, I guess, intentionally giving specific powers to an individual specifically to trigger this tax rule. So all we have to do is to make the power of appointment general. And I know that's, uh, again, a, a pretty vague term if you're not familiar with the tax law. Uh, but general just means as opposed to uh, a specific power of appointment. Uh, there could be all sorts of different powers one could give an individual that would make it general. It could be that you give them the ability during their lives to give it to anybody they choose, right? That obviously would be a power of appointment, a general power of appointment. You could give them the power only at their passing to direct it to, uh, let's say, their creditors or uh, their estate or to their heirs, let's say. That could be a power that we give them, and that would be a general power of appointment. So the idea behind one of these trusts is we would give them, we would choose which of these powers we want to give them, which powers we trust them with over these assets, and we'd give them just enough to trigger this tax rule. In layman's terms, you're basically giving someone the power to give away your assets, right? Somewhat, yeah. So we can limit it, obviously, and that's that's in our best interest, too. But one of the key things we want to do is when we're choosing someone to possess this power of appointment, we're going to want to have a very high level of trust in them because we are giving them authority over assets. That was my next question. Is, uh, my, you know, my concern is uh, if someone is of the older generation, maybe there's some faculties that aren't as sharp as they used to be, or, you know, you give them the power of appointment and then they still have a life expectancy of five years, but three years later, they, you know, their, their faculties start to fail a little bit more. Boy, is that a concern that they will give it to somebody else or give it to a charity or give it to a neighbor or something? 
So that can be. So the way we limit uh, the risks of these, we could do it in a number of different ways. So the first way that we do it is we make the power of, or the first way we could do it, I suppose, is we make the power testamentary. So in this case, that means that they can only exercise it uh, upon their passing. So they can't, while they're alive, say, give these assets away. And this protects us in a number of different ways. So this, you know, let's say it's it's your, your mother or your grandmother that you've given this authority to and, you know, yeah, they start, you know, getting a little bit of dementia and you think, hmm, you know, they may, they may not really uh, be in the position to accurately uh, steward these assets. And so I'm getting a little concerned. One could always undo this transaction hmm. while they're alive and then there wouldn't be that risk of, of them doing that if it's just a testamentary power. Uh, also, you know, another case, this would be, you know, they get interested in the pool boy and they think, oh, you know, we're going to leave a bunch of assets to <laughs> to them. Then then that would be <laughs> that would be a case we could avoid by making it testamentary. That way we would probably have some idea ahead of time that that something like this was happening and the risk would go up and then we'd reverse this transaction. Gotcha. There's some other belts and suspenders I think you can put on those trusts, right, Dave? But in general, yeah, you need to trust this person pretty implicitly, right? They're going to have a lot of power. That said, we're going to talk a little bit about what could go wrong there, but let's talk about some of the the fact pattern and and factors that we need to get this strategy in place because it's pretty case specific. And again, we spend a lot of time with our clients and we get to know them really well. So we're able to identify these on a pretty regular basis. But, you know, obviously, our clients would need to have a low basis asset that they want to get a step up in basis on. And then they're going to need to have somebody that they could name or give this power of appointment to that probably has a shorter life expectancy than normal. Because at some point you probably want to get this asset back. And one of the reasons we're talking about this today is because the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act that was signed December 19th, 2017, put a provision in there that made this strategy a little bit, it made a bigger net for it. And what we're talking about is the estate tax exemption. And and so I want to make sure everyone gets this because this is critical to the strategy. If you don't, if you could mess this up if you don't get this right. So Dave, when we're talking about doubling of the estate tax exemption and this strategy, what does that mean? What, how does that play into this? Yeah. So this is, it is, I guess, a necessary component to make this strategy work. Back when the applicable credit was low and shielded, uh, you know, only a small amount, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity. Hey, Dave, what's the applicable credit just for our audience here? Okay, sure. So the applicable credit, this is a credit that shields a transfer of assets from the estate tax. So when one, one passes away, all of your assets could potentially be subject to estate taxes and estate taxes you know depending on the year it's it's a pretty severe tax the marginal rate could be you know it's it's currently 40% is the highest but the highest it's ever been is around 55% i guess in recent memory uh, so it's it's a tax to avoid if we can now most assets that are passed most estates aren't subject to estate taxes because this of this applicable credit this applicable credit shields a certain amount from the effects of estate taxes. So if one passes away uh, and the total assets that one owns or controls is below that applicable credit, then there's no estate tax due. And if you're above that applicable credit, estate taxes are only due on the amount that's above that uh, limit. So 
in the past, you know, it's been as low as, let's say, 600,000. That was, say, 97 and before. Uh, it's been, you know, it's bounced around all, all over the years. It's been a million. It's been two million, three and a half. Uh, it was uh, five million, and then they adjusted it for inflation. So it's been a little bit higher than that. And then, you know, this most recent law, it doubled it. And so for individuals, uh, we're above 11 million now in this applicable credit. So it's, uh, it really is providing a lot of room to do a strategy like this. Let's get clear here. If you're, if you're looking at, let's say you're G2, you're the client, and you're looking at G1, you're G1 generation one, you're looking at mom to do the strategy. If mom's worth $20 million, is this something we'd be looking at? I would say definitely no, because again, in that situation, every dollar that's added to mom's estate uh, is going to be subject to estate taxes at whatever that marginal rate is. So if we do this strategy and save taxes on capital gain, you know, even at, you know, worst case scenario, say, you know, 30, 40%, then, and we're incurring it at estate taxes at 40%, or could be even worse, you know, the 40% is actually quite low in terms of the historical uh, marginal rate on estate taxes, then that's not a very good trade-off, right? We're not doing anything, we're not accomplishing anything, and we may be costing ourselves money if we add to that problem. So if, if uh, generation one has an estate tax problem already, uh, then this is not a good strategy. The estate tax exemption right now is $11.49 million. So you need room there that you can give assets to the G1 person that you're nominating here, that they have to have room so that additional assets could be added to their estate so that they don't have an estate tax. So in an ideal situation, we see this pretty commonly. Somebody has 20, 30, 40 million dollars as, as our client and their mom or dad only has, or their parents combined have just a couple million dollars. So, you know, if it's a couple that, that $11.4 million is now $23 million. So there's a lot of room there, but it does, it, it works better with one individual, I think, because you don't know when two people are going to die. So if there's, if there's just one person, you want them to have remaining exemption amounts so that you can give them this power and at the end of the day when they pass away and go to heaven or wherever they go that the irs comes in and says okay hey even with these extra assets they're not going to have an estate tax and oh by the way here is your step up in basis and then now you as the beneficiary get the step up in basis that right dave Correct. Now, I don't know what you're implying. Go to heaven or wherever they go. Obviously, if they're if they're <laughs> kind enough to do the strategy for you, they're definitely going to heaven, in my opinion. <laughs> that that punches the ticket right there. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. There you go. So yeah, no, absolutely. So if we have again, if we change the fact pattern to where Generation One doesn't have 20 million, let's say they only have two million, like you said then yeah, I think that it provides ample opportunity to do a strategy like this where we could uh, you know, transfer assets into this power of appointment trust. These assets are in a sense adding to generation one's uh, overall estate when it gets measured. But so long as we stay below that, what the applicable credit will shield, uh, then we're still in good shape. So we get the uh, step up, but we don't incur uh, estate taxes. And that's that's kind of the sweet spot we want to be in. So Dave, in that situation, let's call it $11.5 million of applicable credit or exemption. And they're worth $2 bucks. 
you could do nine and a half million dollars in this strategy, but the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act sunsets back in two, or in 2026, and it's going to drop back down to 6.4 million dollars. Let's just say you added 10 million dollars to Mom's estate. How do you protect against that sunset provision, provided she lives longer than 2026, so that you didn't give too much money to Mom, and now you're just going to get hit with estate tax? Right. So generally what we can do in these trusts is we make the power of appointment contingent, uh, meaning other things have to be true for that person to be able to exercise that power of appointment. So in this case, what we would do is we would say generation one can exercise that power of appointment only to a dollar amount of their estate less or the applicable credit less the value of their estate. So that would be a way of, uh, I guess, mathematically or, or in the trust document itself, limiting the negative impact of law changes on this applicable credit. So you do a formula-based strategy that says, hey, this amount of money is what mom could give away, and that amount of money is equal to her estate exemption minus her assets, is that right? Indeed. And there's other things we can do too with with how we fund the trust. Uh, occasionally, we can make it so the value of uh, the, I guess the nominal value of those assets is uh, less when uh, reported on their estate tax return. Uh, so we we limit the risk there as well. Well, Dave, let's talk about the risks with this strategy uh, aside from the estate tax risk. Right, you're giving someone quite a bit of power, so. I often hear, you know, when you present a technical strategy, something like this, most people want to know what can happen, what can go wrong, what can go wrong here, Dave? This sounds too good to be true. Absolutely. So let's, I'd say, let's take the risks from most severe to least severe. How about that? That'll that'll save our listeners time. So I think most severe risk is you pick somebody who is untrustworthy, right? And then they exercise that power of appointment in a way that you don't approve of. Okay, that's that's the main risk. And the way, again, we deal with that risk, that major risk is you choose people that you trust implicitly. And if your trust is ever wavers in them, then you can just reverse the transaction and uh, sleep easy at night again. So that's, I think the first key is that you want to pick the right individual and that's gonna give you a lot of comfort. Dave, is that like giving your mom the power and to your point, she falls in love with the pool boy and then she decides to redirect all your assets to the pool boy? Is that what we're talking about? That's right. That's right. So, I mean, number one, we can, in the design of the trust itself, really kind of limit the negative effects of something like that, of a breach of trust or power of appointment holder doing something that you would disapprove of by... You know, we could make it testamentary. We could limit that general power of appointment to, you know, the individual could only direct it to creditors of their estate or to heirs or something like that. So uh, we could limit it in some ways to uh, shield us from some of those unexpected negative consequences. So that if, you know, we did this strategy and then we, you know, did did see mom carousing around with the pool boy, then we might say, okay, now's the time to uh, switch this around because this is now a different risk than I, than I got in for. Okay. That's, that's the first risk. What's, uh, I think another risk is the creditor piece that you kind of touched upon that, Dave. 
And that yep, is absolutely. And I'd say that is probably the second largest risk, again, depending on the circumstances. Um, you know, one uh, never knows, I suppose, whether uh, there is a risk of creditors coming after an individual. But if you have a, uh, a parent or another older relative and they're willing to do this strategy with you, then probably knowing what their uh, balance sheet looks like is going to be key, knowing uh, you know what is likely to occur in the future as far as uh, credit risk is going to be key. Uh, I mean, really older individuals, sometimes the, the major creditor risk would be like medical bills or something like that. You know, they're not going out and flying an experimental airplane into, you know, into a crowd or something like that. They're, they're not engaging in risky activities that's going to cause a li lot of liability in that sense. So it's, it's really more about risks that uh, they've incurred a bunch of debt and uh, you're going to be on the hook for that if, if it's unknown. But you're, that's, that's part of the reason that you pick who you pick is that uh, they're going to be a very low credit risk. So that, that's a way of dealing with that particular issue. There are some fancy things one can do with these trusts too, uh, structuring them in certain states with specific uh, legal provisions that limit the effect of you know, what creditors can do and things like that. But th these are relatively untested and, and fancier than we need them because uh, oftentimes uh, you know, we're not in that situation where we only have one person and they're a major credit risk, but we want to use them anyway. So that, that's not usually the case. Kyle, it sounds to me like any, any opportunity for the person that you're entrusting with this to give it away or get it take it away, uh, like you said, as far as maybe a, a creditor or something like that, those seem to be the, the the biggest hurdles. Are there any others that we need to know about? No, that's. I mean, you're giving them a big power uh, that it's broad that they can do a lot with. You know, you just probably want to be cognitive if you don't really have that great a relationship with mom and she has a soft spot for your brother who doesn't have any money. That might be notable. You probably also don't want to like bind up the trust document and make it a, a coffee table reading document for you know people to visit yeah. and, and possibly influence mom and say hey look at this probably probably avoid that if you could but generally speaking our clients don't really have that big an issue right I mean they, they have a great relationship with their parents and again it's all back to the fact profile and it's back to the planning and the core of of how we do what we do. And so for our clients, if they can come in and share the details of their life and share their family tree, and we put a family tree together for everybody that comes in, and we talk about all of these issues and we identify all the different opportunities, then Dave and I will have, you know, if we identify this as an opportunity for someone, Dave and I will get in the same room with this person and we'll walk them through all the risks and uh, and all the benefits, and I think the benefits outweigh the, the, the risk by a long shot for most people. It's pretty case-specific. Mm -hmm. Dave, you want to add to that? Yeah, no, I, this type of strategy, if the facts are right, and again, the facts we need are generation one with uh, limited life expectancy, generation one with space below their applicable credit, and a good relationship with Generation One and assets that are highly appreciated. Uh, I mean, this is uh, just like a home run. There's, there's not a lot of downside to it. It can make a massive difference to uh, the client in terms of tax, in terms of flexibility, in terms of safety of their assets. You know, they can diversify out of 
concentrated positions, all of that. It can be very, very valuable. So I, I brought this up to a client of mine two weeks ago, and he said, well, this kind of sounds like a hassle. And I'm like, this is, this is not a hassle. This is two hours of your life to save. I think in his case, it was well over a million dollars. And, you know, he had identified his mom, well, his wife's mom was frail and probably had two to four years to go. And once I said, hey, look, this is a no-brainer. It's a couple hours of your life and you're done. It's like, oh, yeah, we, we, let's revisit that. And so we're going to proceed with that conversation with that gentleman for sure. Yeah, if I can make a couple, you know, a million bucks in a couple hours, I'm all in. Yeah, absolutely. You know, that's what we try to do for our clients. All right. Any closing thoughts for today on this subject? I mean, this was very robust. No, I just make sure you seek the right advice, right? Make sure you have people that have done this and they know what they're doing. It's a very beneficial strategy for a lot of people. I think the net is pretty wide in terms of who all it could benefit. One of the things I like about the strategy is you can tell pretty much anybody you know about it and someone's going to know somebody that it can apply to. Mm-hmm. Uh, but most importantly, just make sure you get the right the right team. You know, obviously, I, I believe in our process here and we can identify these processes and we work closely with our clients, professionals, or you can choose to use Dave or whoever it is and we can get it all set up and uh, make a pretty big impact in, in your family's life. Sure. Well, that was my next statement is that this sounds like it has a tremendous amount of moving parts. Anybody listening to this podcast right now, if you're thinking about this and you think, well, this, this may be something that I could do, obviously Kyle's already said it. You've got to seek out a professional and the professionals at Satura Wealth, that's, that's who I'm advising you to go to. Kyle, how can they reach out to you if they do have questions about this or they want to meet and just discuss their specific circumstance? Uh, you can find us on the, on the web at www.centurawealth.com. Uh, I think my email is on the webpage. So, any of those ways, uh, LinkedIn, I think you can get to us a variety of different ways. It's not hard to find us. Yeah, <laughs> should be pretty easy. All right, guys, thank you so much for your time today. This was a great podcast. And for those listening at home, uh, you know, one of the takeaways is if you have a brother that is, is putting together, and I'm using air quotes, art with popsicle sticks, rubber, cement, googly eyes, and maybe plastic bottles, and your mom thinks that that's just the greatest thing in the world, maybe she's not the one you want to put the asset with. But uh, think about <laughs> what you could do. Think about the taxes that you could save and all the possibilities because, like I said, if I could make you know a million bucks in a couple hours, I'm all over it. Again, I want to thank you all for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast with the team from Centura Wealth Advisory. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when they come out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Centura Wealth Advisory, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Live Life Liberated podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Centura Wealth Advisory. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Centura Wealth Advisory, Centura, is an SEC registered investment advisor with its principal place of business in San Diego, California. 
Centura and its representatives are in compliance with the current registration and notice filing requirements imposed on SEC-registered investment advisors, in which Centura maintains clients. Centura may only transact business in those states in which it is notice filed or qualifies for an exemption or exclusion from notice filing requirements. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Tax relief varies based on client circumstances and all clients do not achieve the same results.